Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narbuzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Fiona. How's it going? All right, thank you. What's new with you? I don't know about new. I read a book, which <laughs> an old book. <laughs> no, I've always got I've always got some old stuff on the go. But actually, I read a new book called In the Garden: Essays on Nature and Growing, uh, because I went into a bookshop and uh, and bought it. I haven't done that for, uh, you know, I actually physically went and looked around. I was in um, West London, so I went to Daunt Books. Oh, I was going to say, it's Daunt, isn't it? It's a collection of of, of writing by, or by all sorts. It's lovely. It's it's about how we think about gardens, um, sometimes people's early experience of gardens or their expectations. Um, crucially, the fact that gardens are never finished. You must never think that's it, my garden's done. I, I certainly do not. Because <laughs> it will always throw something at you. And, you know, ideas about the sort of Garden of Eden and paradise and that we have idealised um, forms of them and also some quite practical stuff. There's a good one. I think it's called Call Me Alan because her friends call her Alan because she's like Alan Titchmarsh by Caroline Craig. Uh, I might be making that up, actually. Anyway, yeah, Just Call Me Alan, it's called. And there's a brilliant essay by Daisy Lafarge, who I wasn't familiar with. who's was a poet, I think. It's all pretty brilliant, actually. Highly recommended. Mm. Well, um, before we get lost in the weeds in my own garden, as I as I look out the window, we should let everyone know that Hay Festival has revealed its free digital programme for its 34th spring edition, bringing writers and readers together for an inspiring array of conversations, debates, workshops and performances online from Wednesday, May 26th to Sunday, June 6th. Over 12 days, more than 300 acclaimed writers, global policymakers, historians, poets, pioneers, 
and innovators and probably gardeners too will take part, launching the best new fiction and non-fiction and interrogating some of the biggest issues of the day. We'll be there. Our own Toby Lishtick will be interviewing the novelist John McGregor about his new book, Lean Fall Stand. And I'll be speaking to Rebecca Watson, the author of the novel Little Scratch. You'll find all the details of those events and hundreds of others online at hayfestival.org slash Wales. Now, coming up on this week's show. Promises is the product of an exciting five-year musical partnership between the electronic producer Floating Points and the jazz saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders, renowned for his improvisation. The result, says our writer Alexander Leisler, is a wild, mixed-media, intergenerational collaboration. We'll hear all about that. And we'll have a new poem by Andrew Motion at Low Tharston, written in memory of the poet Anthony Thwaite, who died towards the end of April. But first, 100 years ago this month, Luigi Pirandello's play Six Characters in Search of an Author premiered at the Teatro Valle in Rome. The place was packed. The event, writes Anne Hallamore Caesar this week, is the stuff of theatrical legend, with a battle threatening to erupt between defenders of the playwright's daring vision and detractors who, faced with absurdity, saw only incomprehensibility. Pirandello and his daughter were bundled out through the stage door to safety. Just a few months later, though, the play's second performance went rather differently. The applause was deafening. The critics hailed a masterpiece. This is the verdict that stuck, and the play is now a byword for modernist theatre. Here to discuss this play in the context of Pirandello's life and work is Anne Hallamore Caesar, Professor Emerita in Italian Literature at the University of Warwick and the author of Characters and Authors in Luigi Pirandello. Uh, Anne, many thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. We've sort of set the scene there. May 1921, Six Characters makes its premiere. Uh, what did people see on stage and whether they approved of it or not? Was it that was so shocking? I think uh, one of the things that must have immediately shocked is sort of different levels of reality that were being portrayed. People, actors performing like you or me. But then the appearance of these characters, what were they? Who were they? And combined with that, the kind of almost tawdriness of the story, the meeting in the brothel, the family falling apart, the constant sort of family fighting going on on stage and the struggle to kind of grab the centre of the scene. I think it just must have been very disorienting for an audience who turned up to see a well-made story with a nice beginning, middle and end. They weren't going to get that. And that it was it was both in, in the form and the content. First of all, it was like, who are these guys who've just suddenly appeared? And then also the subject matter was very shocking. It was, it was sort of both sides, was it? You're right. Yes, I think it's both sides. It's not simply the meta-theatricality and the play with theatre. It's also the content that is brought to the stage. And it's the clash between those two, really. And, and where was Pidandello at this point in terms of his career and standing, I suppose? I mean, he was born in 1867, so by this point he was 54. And he was well known in 
in Italy by this point? Yes, he was he was well known in Italy. He had, for much of his kind of literary career, struggled to make ends meet. So he was writing not only, obviously, plays, but lots of short stories, lots of novels, getting things published, getting the money for them, essays, articles. He was teaching until the early 20s in a girls' school. And apparently they adored him. He, was, he always turned up very elegantly dressed. So he was establishing a career for himself. But at this point, he was not real. I, he wasn't sort of internationally known or anything like that. That was yet to come. And uh, I mean, just to go back to what Lucy was, was asking before, formally speaking, he probably hadn't done anything that was quite so so radical by this point to have, you know, the context that the six characters is you think you're watching a play and then it's it's interrupted by these six characters appearing and sort of storming the stage almost and, and throwing everything up in the air in terms of, as you say, what what is reality? What is it that we're watching? Whose story is this? This must have been a departure for him as well, a kind of a pushing beyond what he had done before. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, this is the first of a trilogy of plays, in fact. Um, there's Each in His Own Way, Ciascuna Suo Modo, and then there's Tonight We Improvise. And the three of them together offer a, this challenge to conventional theatre and really break ground and make way for the theatre that follows. It isn't that there's a sort of before and after. It is a gradual process with him. He is experimenting already in earlier work, but nothing like this. I mean, this is the breakthrough play. And I suppose um, in terms of how this work came about, it's quite enlightening to, as you say, it's a process because the predicament of these of these characters who are looking for their author, their, their being in search of an author rather than a playwright is genuine, isn't it? it that sort of sheds light on, on his process because they, or certainly one of them had appeared elsewhere in, in another form. Yes, they'd been with him, so to speak, or at least the father had been with him for some time. And he really, it, the father figure had haunted him. He kind of lived with him. So he appears in, and I think three of the short stories under different guises with different names, but he's kind of there. There is a striking short story where he appears where the father is sitting outside his study waiting to come in and demanding an audience of Pirandello, demanding that Pirandello writes him up, as it were, or writes him down. And Pirandello did try different things with this character. He did try to put him in a novel, and that just didn't work. Um, and a lot of his, I mean, the short story was his preferred mode, wasn't it? He intended to write a short story for every day of the year, which gives you a sense of how uh, prolific he was in, in that particular department. Um, but as you say, this family dysfunction, it occurs across his work, but the short stories really show us how abundantly that features. Yes. I mean, the short story, I don't know if it was his preferred. I mean, the short story was clearly also a means of trying out something before it went to the novel or it went on stage. It also was must have been a kind of therapeutic exercise, but perhaps one doesn't want to go too far down that road. And he was a guy who just needed to write. And he wrote and he wrote. I think um, the short stories, and I think many things similarly, are superb, partly because so many of them 
are also located in Sicily and that Sicilian reality and the short story seem to fit so well with each other. Well, I mean, you 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 put your finger on that kind of the the richness of Sicily uh, in that tradition. So let's talk about Pirandello's genesis there, his birth in a town called Chaos, Chaos, which is just an irresistible um, detail, really. Can you tell us about his uh, his humble beginnings? Yes, well, they weren't... Uh, Chaos was a hamlet, and uh, I don't know if it's irony or not, his parents had fled there because of the cholera, and, you know, I mean, there was a very serious cholera outbreak which led to Pirandello's birth there. It killed 69,000 in Sicily, 24,000 in Palermo alone, so very severe. His family were actually middle class in the sense that there were uh, sulphur mines. They were well, well middle class. They, were, they weren't poor. The collapse came with literally the collapse of the sulphur mines and the loss of the family fortune, and also of his wife's fortune, which of course the dowry that she brought to the marriage. But before they married, I mean, Pirandello was able to study Palermo, Rome, and then when he was kicked out of Rome University for insubordination in Germany, so when he then returned to Sicily, he already had a very much greater experience of the world and a widening of horizons. He, his knowledge of German was perfect. He wrote his uh, dissertation in German. He'd had a very important love affair in Germany, um, which uh, came to an end when he returned to Sicily. And then he was back in Sicily and I, his wife, oh God alone knows, I, you know, it's a marriage made in hell. She uh, had been brought up in a convent, had really varied about Catholic. They met once before they married. So an extraordinary gap between their own life experiences that probably exacerbated her complete breakdown and all that ensued her, her acute jealousy seems almost an understatement. And, you know, one doesn't know what she actually, what, how to describe her state of mind, but it was a state of mind which led her to believe that her daughter Lieta and her husband were having an incestuous relationship which also led to her refusing all food unless somebody else tasted it before. And then on top of that, of course, Pirandello is writing about it. It's coming out all the time in his writing. Well, she, she was incarcerated in, uh, Antonietta was incarcerated in, in 1919, I think it was. And so then when you, you, know, you put the dates side by side, you see that six characters uh, with that story about the father uh, and the stepdaughter in the brothel it's difficult not to read the two side by side and not, not just in the plays, but in the short stories as well. These reversals of fortune feature um, across the work that don't they? they're sort of at the centre. The cent- I mean, it doesn't sound very humorous now, but they are at the heart of, of his theory of humour, aren't they? How, how, how things can change just like that. That's right. I mean, that you, you know, we have everything planned. We know how we think things are going to go. And then, something happens, totally arbitrary, 
totally unexpected and the world is turned upside down. That happens to all his characters. The lack of control, the relativism of it all, yes. But he gets a great deal, I mean, it's a great deal of humour out of it at all, as, as well. And that's, I suppose, where good translation is important to catch those moments of humour. It's not all bleak and glum. OK, well, let's let's talk about translation, though, because um, one of one of the books that you're reviewing in this uh, review essay of yours is uh, by Virginia Dewis. That's a translation of a well, she's she's selected and um, and translated um, some of his hundreds and hundreds of stories. Uh, I think there are 30 in this. And this is a book called Stories for the Years. So tell us tell us about that book. First of all, let me say physically, it's a very nice book. It, it is lovely to hold. And yes, yeah, it's important. Pirandello paid attention to the production of his work. So I'm doing so as well. She has, um, the book is well put together. There is an interesting introduction. The stories are listed with the date at which they were published, but she actually puts them put together in her own order. And it's a very good selection because there's um, they're well-known stories, but they're also lesser-known stories. And I think it makes a very good, interesting point of departure if you want to read Pirandello for the first time. I would go to something like this because it gives you a sense of the range of Pirandello's writing, of the different kinds of issues he takes on, on the different, he has an amazing array of characters. I mean, often quite grotesque. He's very good at, you know, just a couple of sort of lines and this physical grotesque character appears before you. His writing is very visual. And then there is this lovely combination of stories from Sicily with that harsh agrarian context, stories from Rome. He has a wonderful story of a Jewish man who uh, marries out and he marries dreadful. I mean, not because he's a very devout Catholic, but he's a dreadful man who is also a very devout Catholic, his daughter. And it's a wonderful story of how um, the Jewish protagonist, in the end, gets his own back. It's 1916, this story was written, and it is Christmas Eve now at the end of the story. And this awfully bigoted father-in-law has spent weeks with two workers putting together the most fantastic nativity scene for the children the children of his Jewish son-in-law and his daughter. And they then go off to church. While they're away, um, the goy, the Jewish father, removes all these nativity bits and pieces, the camels and the, the magi, the whole lot, they're all removed. And he replaces them with little toy soldiers, with guns. And so the whole of the nativity scene is set out with toy soldiers representing different countries involved in the First World War. And their guns are pointing at the manger. The point is that the guy this way has got, his, has got back at his bigoted father-in-law by showing how Christianity and war can also 
happen together. These soldiers are all Christians. And it is a wonderfully told story, sharp and insightful and very clever. But it's very interesting, especially since um, later on, he's a pretty ardent fascist, isn't he? Or maybe even by that point, he's a pretty ardent fascist, not necessarily anti-Semitic, but he's, a, he's, a, he's an active supporter of Mussolini and the fascists. Is that right? Yes, you are right. It, yeah, this is a difficult one, isn't it? He is, um, he's not a Democrat by any manner of me. He never is a Democrat. Um, you know, people say, well, Sicily was always falling apart and he always felt that there needed to be a strong figure. So he joined the fascist party very publicly long before the question of anti-Semitism or racism in the early 20s had really risen. And of course, um, you know, he worked with Jewish directors and so forth. Now, he did admire Mussolini and he did go on tour in the United States with plays where he talked up Mussolini and gave little speeches at the end about Mussolini. There was a degree of self-interest there because he hoped for lots of funding. He got a bit of funding, but not much. It didn't come good in the end. And he wanted a sort of, he wanted a national theatre, which he would control and direct. So he had sort of artistic, if you like, reasons for it. Um, the relationship gradually really fell apart. I mean, I don't think Mussolini could really cope with, uh, with Pirandellianism or... <laughs> It was not quite as, it's not quite what he wanted. And it certainly was not patriotic as in the way that he understood patriotism. So um, that was a relationship that fell apart. So yes, he joined the fascist party. Yes, he joined after the murder of Matteotti. Which, um, so a very sensitive moment in the history of the party. And yes, he joined very publicly. At the end of his life though, Interestingly, he wrote, he, well, he wrote this before he died. He said he did not want a state funeral. He wanted no pomp. He wanted no ceremony. He wanted a very, very simple funeral, which is what he got. It was his. And that is, you know, many of us see as a kind of statement against what fascism in, had become. Um, in terms of shifting about between forms, uh, not, not politically, but... Um, his work itself, whether it's short stories or plays or, or novels, you also discuss his interest in, in cinema and how this figures in one of his best novels, Sigida, which is another book that has, it's just been reissued. So what can you, what can you tell us about, about that one? It's great to see it reissued um, because it's a very interesting novel about the cinema and in Rome, um, in the 1920s. And the story is really told through the diaries of a cameraman who is absolutely quintessentially a Pirandellian protagonist. And so far as he has, well, almost both feet out of society, he looks on. And as cameraman, he just turns the handle that does the filming. It's a very interesting novel because Pirandello knew a lot about cinema. I think one of the strengths of Pirandello's work is that he always 
got engaged with the nuts and bolts of it, you know, with the technicalities, with the staging and so forth. He was a hands-on dramatist, uh, so on and so forth. In cinema, he, he did work in the cinema. He tried working as a um, screenwriter, but it came, it came to nothing. He got one or two of his uh, plays staged, one with Greta Garbo, which is quite something. And um, he had high hopes that say, but six characters would also be screened by Hollywood. So this is um, a novel that is very interesting in terms of what it shows you about cinema, in terms of the Rome it presents as well, because of course we're getting another image of Rome at this time, which is Danuncio's Rome. You couldn't see any, you know, you, you, difficult to find anything more contrasting. And also it's another classic where fiction and reality, the invented and reality, the unreal and the real come together with appalling real consequences in the shooting of a scene where it is meant to be a, a scene, well, it is a scene in a faked jungle where a heavily sedated tiger is meant to be um, killed by the hero. And it all goes, I'll leave it there, it all goes horribly wrong. The tiger survives. <laughs> <laughs> Still to come on the show, an inspiring work of musical collaboration between a jazz saxophonist and an electronic producer, and a new poem by Andrew Motion, in memory of the late Anthony Thwaite. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition. Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. I think you would have to be a very, very bad biographer not to make Roth interesting. How could you not? How could he not be interesting? But he doesn't try to rehabilitate him. He doesn't. Ex- he gives you just about everything. I think, you know, as far as you can tell from this. And I've read uh, one of the other biographies that that adds some names. But he doesn't apologize. He doesn't try to justify anything. It's just there. And then it's up to the reader to to respond. Measure for Measure is a first folio only play, so it's not published until 1623. That means that we've got only one early witness to take account of. And in the scene when Isabella and Claudio are discussing the terrible bargain that Angelo has proposed, that if he has sex with Isabella, he will free her brother Claudio from prison. They describe Angelo twice with this word uh, that doesn't appear anywhere else in Shakespeare and nobody really knows what it means. It's prenzy, P-R-E-N-Z-I-E. And I'm really hoping to revive it a bit with this review. I'm hoping it's going to be a whole lot of letters about prenzy. And we're, we're going to put a bit I'm of sure life- they will. <laughs> I hope so. I think I'm going to put a bit of life back into this debate. Now that we actually have the centenary of partition, it seems a very good time to take stock of what was happening in the past. One of the things that struck me is that with all the attention focused, quite rightly in fact, on the recent troubles in the North, it is quite easy to overlook earlier conflicts which ravaged the whole of Ireland, causing what Sean O'Casey amusingly called a terrible state of chassis. Though in truth, there is nothing amusing about any of them.
this was not a movie about racism. Then I think Stephen Yun, the actor who plays、um, Jacob, he, he was also pretty overt about that. That this is not an identity movie, and I respect that as well because you know, at some point, when do we get to make a movie about a Korean American family that is not an identity movie? You know, that burden is always on you know writers of color or artists of color, and at some point, we hope that. We're not always telling the same identity story, and that we're not asked to tell that story over and over again. So, I do appreciate that very fine line that he's walking. Before we see what happens when a veteran saxophonist and an electronic producer put their heads together, we're joined by Andrew Motion, who's written a moving poem in memory of the poet Anthony Thwaite, a longtime contributor to the TLS, who died at the age of ninety a fortnight ago. Andrew Motion, thank you for joining us. A pleasure to be here. Before we ask you to read the poem for us, would you mind telling us a little a little about Anthony Thwaite? I mean, most of us know him only through his work, whether. Uh, as a poet or, or or an editor, but he he was to you he was also a friend. Well, he became a friend really through the the work. I can remember when I was a student. Not that we called ourselves students. This is such a long time ago.、Um, when I was an undergraduate,、um, in about ten sixty six, looking up and noticing that virtually every road to publication, because I was already writing poems myself at that stage, had Anthony Thwaite standing on it somewhere or other. Which is to say that he was. Successively, the editor of almost all the places that people like me then wanted to get published,、um, and he also, at some point during that time, was the poetry editor at Secker and Warburg too, because they then had a poetry list of their of their own, long since dismantled.、Um, in other words, he was absolutely the person who'd sort of managed to install himself, and this despite having had a very intrepid life, really, by poetical standards, up to that point, spending a lot of it abroad and so on. Um, in Japan and and elsewhere,、um, but he'd installed himself as the person who was somehow kind of overseeing what was going on in English poetry, and I suspect that that was really the reason why Larkin、um, asked him to become one of his literary executors.、Um, and Anthony had been one of Larkin's literary executors for quite a long time, along with Larkin's、um, girlfriend, hardly sounds the right word, companion Monica Jones.、Um, For quite a long time before I became a friend of Larkin's myself, but my、um, my almost entirely sort of literary connections with Anthony, which had been the description of our relationship up until my friendship with Larkin began, then took on this extra sort of friendship dimension.、Um, so for the last twenty five years, whatever it is since Philip died, Anthony and I have worked quite closely together on estate business, and and of course our friendship deepened over that time. Um, that's rather a long answer to your question. The short answer to your question is that his achievements really combine、um, what he managed to do as a poet in his own right with what he was able to do for other people, both as an editor、um, creating publication opportunities for people, or as the editor of existing texts. Larkin's, of course, preeminent among them. And I mean, you, so you've you've written a poem for him now, obviously. So.、Um... Let's talk about his poetry,、um, his own poetry, just just briefly. He he belonged to a very 
distinguished class um, graduating from from university. Uh, Jeffrey Hill, George Macbeth were his his contemporaries. So what was what was Anthony Thwaites' style? His distinct gift. I mean, you you use the word gift in in, in your poem, but um, as far as you can summarize it. Well, that is an interesting question because I think that just naming those three people immediately establishes an idea of variety rather than of a sort of straight coherence in that generation. And I think in Anthony's case, there's very obviously a sense of Larkin's legacy in his own work. I mean, this common sense, plain writing, setting, establishing poems as a way of kind of considering a problem, if you like, um, approaching that problem with logical, rational means, as well as by various metaphorical roots. But that that idea of plain speaking, uh, poems for people who are, as it were, not poetry specialists to enjoy, that, that stands very close at the heart of Antony's achievement as a poet, I think. Though having said that, I immediately want to say that if we think that that's all he managed to, that's the only style in which he managed to write, then we're doing him a disservice because there are all kinds of offshoots from that from that centre. Actually, a formal restlessness about his work that's really quite interesting, I think. Mm, there's a, there are instances where he sort of hides one form in another, doesn't he? Couplets in the sonnet. That's right, yes. So, he, so he's technically extremely adroit. Um, but common sense, as I say, and wanting to use poems as vehicles for understanding things in life that puzzle or bewitch him better. That seems to me the sort of platform that the poems stand on. And in this little poem I, I wrote for him, which is an unrhymed sonnet, I wanted to um, try and catch the way in which the work that he did as a poet, sailing under his own flag, so to speak, combined with the work that he did for other people, to produce a, an idea of his life as a, a thing that was both self-examining, but also generous to others. Well, Andrew, then, if, if you're ready on that note, let's hear the poem, please. Thank you. It set this poem, I should say, um, on a little bit of river that ran close to the house that he and his now widow Anne Thwaite lived in, in the middle of rural Norfolk, a tiny village called Low Tharston, a very reedy river, which I once went punting on with him. And when I was thinking about him in the immediate aftermath of the news of his death, that was the scene that I found my mind going back to. So at Low Tharston, if you had been able to choose your day to die, you would have chosen April 23rd, just hours later than the one allotted. On sweet Norfolk water, heavily fenced in by reeds, your rustling punt once swept me up, the boyish push and pull, your hair grey graduate and quick shy hands, a passing flicker in the willow's thousand eyes. But there it was, the question you kept close. Tell me, do poets sacrifice or serve themselves in what they do for others? Antony, for you, the gift expanded in the giving, which becomes one more thing that you'll never hear from me. Not now the river clears, and through its trees, your silhouette keeps going, going. Andrew Motion, thank you very much. That was um, that was lovely and lovely to have you on as always. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And Andrew Motion's most recent collection of poems is Randomly Moving Particles, published last year.
Now, if you put together an electronic producer, an improvising jazz saxophonist, a classical orchestra, a painter of opacity and abstraction, and an art-focused cinematographer, what do you get? Silly question, really, because you could get all sorts of things, but what we've got is a film called Promises Through Congress, based around the album Promises. Our own Alexander Leisler reviewed it for us, and he's here to spread the word. Zan, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Um, so can you tell us about the album, first of all, the album um, Promises, because that's the focus of your review. Who is it by and what is it? These are large questions, I know, but... Um... Yes. <laughs> the, um, your introduction sums it up quite well. There's an awful lot going on from lots of different places. And I guess it's, you know, you have these three backgrounds. You have, so Floating Points, real name Sam Shepherd is an electronic producer and musician. Then you've got Farrah Sanders, who's a you know, legendary jazz saxophonist at this stage. He's uh, you know, most famous, perhaps, for his work with John Coltrane in the sort of latter days of his career. But since he's had a huge career full of wide variety of different styles and sort of genres within jazz. And then you've got the London Symphony Orchestra, um, who I guess needs no introduction in that sense. What's the structure of the album? What's that made up of? So the album itself is split into nine movements but fundamentally it's the um, it's, it's completely continuous one full piece really the nine movements are sort of signposting to take you through the album but in theory it's one four to six minute piece that you just sit with and stay with for the duration and in your piece you call it a gorgeous and intoxicating product of intergenerational collaboration do you think that adds to the power of it the display Disparity between not I don't mean just the age, but partly the age, the the age and experience, and um, the sort of backgrounds of all these musicians from different fields. Certainly, yeah. The first time you listen to it is really quite a journey in the sense that you're introduced to certain parts at different stages. You have these opening, this opening sort of phrase, you could say, or refrain. It's just these four chords, well, they're, they're broken chords that introduce the piece at the start and they remain the underpinning of the piece throughout. It sounds crazy to say that the same four chords are played throughout the whole piece, but it really doesn't feel repetitive or sort of maddening in that sense. It has this beautiful quality of returning each time, having slightly different ornamentation or different instruments contributing to those chords. Sometimes you'll have the orchestra will sort of simmer beneath everything and just give texture. Sometimes they'll take over as they do near the back end of the piece. And then other times you have Shepard's production quality. So you have a variety of synthesizers and keyboards. And at one stage, there's this almost a sort of a remnant of a drum loop that comes through. Like there's this other song existing behind the song we're listening to. So how does it relate to the painting? How does it sort of grow out of the of the painting? What is the painting? Sure. So firstly, I mean, you know, describing a piece of abstract art is very difficult inherently. I know, I but, know. Um, Sorry about that. No, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, so I guess it is a it's a very large scale painting that has all sorts of different painting techniques and and sources within it. But it's the piece itself is something that Sam Shepard cited as an inspiration while writing the music and particularly while arranging the orchestras. Yeah, the contribution to the piece. Oh, did he? What he was—he was looking at the picture yeah. while he was arranging yeah, so and he editing. Yeah, he said he frequently would find himself oh, okay. staring into the center of this piece while right trying to write the music. And it's funny that he should say that because that is how the film itself begins. The camera starts right at the center of this piece. It could only be 
of maybe a centimetre square at the centre of this painting. And it slowly, almost imperceptibly, draws you out of the painting to the point where, to start with, you can barely even tell what you're looking at. It's, they look like small etchings or half brush strokes. Um, and you can really see all the details of the acrylic and where the paint's dried and where it's thicker. And then, yeah, and then gradually you just come further and further out. And it's, it's really, a, it's really it has this sort of stilling effect. And since we're um, talking about the opening, you say it places the listener in the room, sits them next to the, the player on the piano stool. Um, we can hear uh, a little bit of that now. So, so that's the the opening, and as you say, that's the sort of that's the motif or refrain that goes throughout it, isn't it, Zand? Um, and uh, although Ferro Sanders is um, he he's he's an improvising player, that's what he does. This whole work, it's not something that's just been sort of dreamt up or improvised on the fly, is it? No, not at all. Um, it almost may seem surprising to know that. The two of them, so Shepard and Sanders, spent the best part of five years working on this piece, which seems like an awful amount of time for a piece that has four fundamental chords. It's only you know, three quarters of an hour long. But I think there was a real emphasis on sitting with the piece for a long period of time and slowly letting it wash over them and ingrain its way into their hearing and thinking. And also it's very, very complex i mean what the orchestra plays is very complex and there's a whole i mean there's different sets of arrangements like you say in different um yeah sections of the orchestra and and the stuff that he's putting in and um and 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 he scored the whole thing didn't he for the orchestra yes yes so sam shepherd arranged the whole score for the orchestra which is again surprising but not entirely if you look through his previous output yeah well he's classically trained on his previous albums yeah he is yeah he's classically trained and as well as being a dj exactly yeah the the classic combination um (laughs) but you know Um, it it may be obvious to say but there are inherent sort of traits that are shared between those acts it's a balancing act and a way of listening and hearing and feeling all these different parts and how they can work together Mm. And so the film, so the, the, the film, as, as you were saying earlier, it starts with this very small focus on the painting. Uh, the painting's called Congress, isn't it, by Julie Meritu. So it opens out. And is, is that it? That's what happens for the whole film? Essentially, yeah. It's You start with, like I said, the smallest centimetre square of the painting right in the centre. And then by the end of the piece, you are so far away from the painting that it's a small rectangular square on your screen and you are just surrounded by the gallery and between the final two movements there's a little period of silence and in that silence in the film the director Trevor Tweeton allows other sounds to come into the mix from outside the music so you can hear some echoing footsteps from around the gallery or a closing door and even sort of the hum of traffic outside the gallery and it's this wonderful sort of 
uh, moment of perspective. You feel like the painting you've just seen is now this memory that washes over you and all you can see are the small details in the distance. And you say that while it's happening, there's a synchronicity between what's seen and what's heard. How does that work? Again, this is, I wonder if this is very intentional or something that can naturally happen when you pair two things together. But um, there's some wonderful moments where you can feel like the two, the music and the painting are talking to each other. There's one moment where, as it's panning out, a small sort of orange circle, very thick blot of paint, starts to come up through the centre of the shot, like a rising sun. And as that happens, there's this wonderful sort of twinkle of glockenspiel notes. Or when Sanders has just finished the passage of playing, one that's particularly busy and energetic, he then stills for a second. And as the painting comes into greater view, these spaces open up and it becomes less busy. And you have this feeling of looking over something rather than being in the busy centre of it. The film sounds like uh, what you say about the album, that it's immersive and it doesn't, it doesn't sort of change. It, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to describe, isn't it? It's, it doesn't shift around or change focus very much, harmonically or visually, but it's not at all repetitive or boring. In fact, I was amazed at how dramatic the music is. Yeah, certainly. In, obvi- in, in an obvious sense, when the LSO come into full force, which is movement six, it really, yeah, as I said, it has this incredibly rousing effect. And they bring the full orchestra in this one moment of real sort of drama and very, it feels very cinematic. But then in other ways, some of Sanders' playing is incredibly powerful. He'll have, he'll have been silent for a few minutes or a few movements and then roar into life with a really hard note or a quick run. And so, yeah, even though it's repetitive and almost meditatively so, it certainly isn't predictable or doesn't allow you to become too comfortable. Well, and un- unpredictably, the Hammond organ makes an appearance, doesn't it, which you might not have seen coming? Yes, yes. That's, Why not? It's, it's, that's in, <laughs> in one of the later movements. Yeah, there's a small sort of soloing run and then some set of really lush chords that um, Sam Shepard plays. And yeah, it's another a, a real jolt from what you're expecting. But it sounds really jarring and, and again, to their credit, it isn't. Well, we can actually um, listen to a little bit now from Movement 6, the bit you're talking about, which is uh, when, the, when the strings kind of swell into life. Um, and let's just listen to a little bit of that now. just like to add as well please use your best headphones if you can because you'll you'll feel the difference because the bass is wonderful it's true Indeed, actually yeah you need you need to have the bass in there that's true so turn turn your bass up on your headphones if we're not being too bossy and now listen <laughs> yeah. to this
I found that that bit with the that line with the strings very moving. Oh yeah. And it's it, it's not. Um, it's just I, I remember you telling me about it before I had heard it, and you said oh, there's a, there's a narrative, there's a there's an arc to it. It doesn't sound as though there yeah. is, but there is an arc. And I I yeah, yeah, I found that was a particularly moving bit actually. The last movement I found most moving, where well, the final movement has this gorgeous maybe minute most of strings playing, and it's, it's mostly the strings isolated together, and especially when you're watching it as well, the when we can see the painting so far away and this final really moving lurch of the strings and then they disappear it was really really powerful and so we can't actually see the film at the moment because that was a kind of it was a it was an event wasn't it It was a sort of one night only but actually people will be able to go and see the painting uh julie meretu's painting congress at the broad museum in los angeles which i think reopens at the end of may so we can just suggest that our listeners in los angeles go and look at the painting put put your earphones on listen to the album at the same time um moving in and out yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) um and, and I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just going to check. Would you encourage our listeners to listen to the album anyway? I think I would, without the painting? if you couldn't tell already. Um, and I should also <laughs> say as well that the painting is part of a sort of mid-career survey of Julie Murtu's work. Um, so I'm sure it'd be, I'd hardly recommend engaging in all of her work when, if someone can't visit. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to alexander leisler andrew motion and anne hallamore caesar thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.